Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 7 this morning, starting in verse 11 through verse 28. If you are borrowing a Bible from us, uh, there's a Bible provided for you. It would be page 1004. Well, Happy New Year to you. Uh, I imagine you got a lot less sleep last night. And you either planned for that because you were up celebrating at midnight or like many of my neighbors, up celebrating at midnight as I had planned to be asleep and then celebrating at 1 o'clock and then maybe 2 o'clock as well. Whatever the case, it's good to be here with you on whatever amount of sleep we've got. Just a heads up, next week uh, we will be served well with the Word of God by a dear friend of mine named Justin Harris, a, a pastor and preacher at Faith Bible Church in Naples, Florida. Justin and I have been friends for maybe four or five years now, and I've been looking for an opportunity for him to preach for us. He's in town. He's glad to preach, and he'll be with us next week to encourage us from God's Word. We'll just take a week break from our series through Hebrews in that case. Well, speaking of things that change, as we've sung about this morning, we have a passage this morning about something that had the change and something that never changes. Let's read together. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after, he, after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This, is, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And this is God's word for us this morning. We want to explore two claims this morning. Simply, Jesus is the change that we need. And secondly, Jesus will never change on us. A bold assertion followed by some bold assurances. And great for a day like today, the first day of a new year where Christy and I this last week have been talking about changes in our home and how we would go about life in this next year and whatnot. And you may be thinking about changes in your own life. Marking that change in the year from 22 to 23 is like a trigger to think about other things that might need to change. And, and God has built the world with its seasons even to help us along in that. We don't, we, the world didn't come with clocks exactly, but it came with a sun and it came with seasons and those are for us with which to mark the time. So talking about change and the kinds of things you may intend to change are all very good. But here is a passage that will confront us with that one big change you must make if you haven't. Or if you have that thing which you must not change at all costs. and does so by means of exploring a change in the Bible's story leading to Jesus and then anchoring our confidence in that in the very unchangeable mind and nature and character of God. So first, first claim, a bold assertion that Jesus is the change that we need And here we're reflecting on verses 11 through 19 together. Let's read verse 11 again. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, I spent... 90% of the week, trying to figure out how to read this long passage we've just read and preach a sermon that felt and sounded straightforward. And as is my custom, if we have a heavy, long, detailed passage, I'll try to get it down to a really simple, accessible outline. I will feel more freedom with more laborious outlines when the passage is straightforward if for any reason, to make the point that there's more going on here than may meet the eye. But in this case, there's a lot that meets the eye, and we're not sure what's going on here. And even in reading this first verse, we realize that we are entering this sermon in the middle of an argument. Not the punching kind, uh, but the persuading kind. Our author, the author of Hebrews, is making a case. He's persuading. We are in a book of 13 chapters, we're in the body of that book, which is really a letter and a sermon, 
And we are, with this passage, coming to the end of the first movement in his argument, which began at the beginning of chapter 5 and deals with the priesthood. The, the latter part of his argument will pick up next week, excuse me, the week following, in chapter 8, and we'll work through most of chapter 10. But we're in the middle of an argument in which our author is seeking to persuade his readers of something, and for a purpose. And we're confronted with the fact that this is going to be perhaps a good amount of work. And it is that. The, the author himself is having a bit of a hard time getting his own job done. You'll remember just a chapter or so ago, he said, these things are hard to explain. Now he said it's because his hearers are somewhat, if not dull of hearing. Nevertheless, the material is difficult. This is, mater- this is difficult material to get across. But we trust God and the Holy Spirit by taking his lead and giving our attention to this, paying much more careful attention to Jesus by following his line of argument. It's often the case we come to the Bible with a question or a concern and we find out that we are given questions and we are questioned and we are given new concerns in reading the Bible. So we want to get our thoughts from God and our priorities from God. And sometimes that means just taking his lead and following an argument and believing that there's something for us here. Even if on first read, it doesn't seem that way. Glad to acknowledge that. We're in the middle of an argument. It implies hard work. This is a part of what it means for us to grow in Christ. Remember, the big danger that our author is addressing is that of drifting away. And there is a real danger that you or I, in the next year, could drift away from the Lord. And if you've walked with the Lord long enough, you'll know that it only takes that much time before someone that you know somewhere who was walking with the Lord has drifted away from him. And so it behooves us to pay careful attention that we might not drift away, not drift away, but draw near to God through Christ. We're always moving in one direction or another. And this book wasn't written to church leaders who are maybe studied and have degrees, some of them. This book was written to every Christian. So this argument, this little verse here we read, and this whole passage we read, it's for every Christian, even if we have to grow into it. And it's in service of our encouragement and our strength to hold fast to Jesus. Often we think about um, when we go to work on Monday, or if we're in the home, if we're busy working in the home on Monday, that requires active engagement of our minds and our hands and our whole life. And then maybe we treat church as we would never put it this way. But based on how we evaluate how things go, in a framework of passive entertainment. Come and sit. How did it all hit me? Was it good or was it bad? Well, on the one hand, we do come to receive from God, not merely to be busy with God's things. On the other hand, well, doesn't a passage like this require some work? So I put in work, and we all put in work together here on Sunday morning, to understand what the author has said with the desire to grow in Christ's likeness and to grow in our regularity and orientation of drawing near to the Lord through Christ. So these are all things that might strike us as we read that first 
that first sentence. So let's get into that argument. So he says in verse 11 here, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what is he talking about with that word perfection? We're going to have to do some dissection here. Well, he mentions it a couple times there in verse 11. In verse 19, he speaks similarly. The law made nothing perfect. And then in verse 28, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Back to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable, this is the first time in the book that he speaks with this language of perfection with respect to you and me. So you see at the end there, the son was made perfect forever. He's spoken that way before in the letter, but, but now in verse 11, he speaks about perfection with respect to us. Now, if perfection for us had been attainable, and that's important. Looking back, the context of the book helps us a bit here. He doesn't define it. Presumably, as we've been reading along, we would intuit what he means. Uh, what, what do you mean by perfection? Well, it wouldn't be quite right, really right at all, to mean made morally perfect so that we are without sin. Now, that hasn't been the purpose of his letter to this point, to concern himself with, with that. So what is this perfection? Well, what is it? except that we would be crowned with glory and honor as sons of God. Our true humanity realized through the work of Jesus the Son incarnate, who lives for us, dies for us, and who raised from the dead in order that we would be raised as well. What does he speak of here except that we would enter into God's rest? What does he mean here except that we would be the inheritors of the blessing of Abraham? Blessing, what a great promise that is for those who live under the curse of sin and of death. Well, however hard this last year was, however hard last night was, the promise of the scriptures is that there are those who will receive the rest of God, the blessed inheritance of blessing given to Abraham and who will be crowned with glory and honor. The Bible puts it a thousand different ways. But if we look forward in this passage now, we find the way that the author in this context is putting it. Verse 19. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. God has made you to draw near to him. He has made us to be close with Him. He has made us for a personal relationship with Him. And becoming a Christian is more than saying, I want a personal relationship with God. For that barrier between us and God, the distance between us and Him, has to be bridged. There's a reason why we are born enemies of God and something must happen and happen to us and happen for us in order for us to have a personal, meaningful relationship of nearness and fellowship with God. But that is the big question of the Bible and that's the question that we all ought to live under. How might we stand before God and live? Even better, 
How might we be near to God forever and live in his life with him forever? Oh, that's something to show up on Sunday morning for. That's something to read the Bible for. That's something to work on a passage like this for. That's something to stay excited about and to stay focused on. And thankfully, in this passage, with all the different things that are going on, it is a simple and beautiful and compelling and universally needed offer for each of us. Mentioned twice here, verse 19 we just read, but also 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So maybe you're thinking, well, I'm here, but it's nice that others can draw near to God, but that's not for me. God has moved on from me. He wouldn't let me draw near to him. Well, not without some type of solution, which we'll explore, but it's one that he provides. So let me just offer you here at the head, verse 25, something that he's fully capable of doing and don't question his power and his ability. He is strong enough. He is able to save to the uttermost, which is to say his arm has reach all the way to you, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. So the offer this morning is for all of us to come and to draw near to God through Jesus. And this sermon, with all of its intricacies and obscurities, is all about who Jesus is, that we might consider him, look to him, know him, and draw near to God through him. A look back and a look forward help us with this language of perfection and what it means. It has to do with a way to stand before God and live, to draw near to God without inhibition or hesitation and enjoy fellowship with Him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, which is to say, it was not. He's speaking about perfection. I've talked a bit about what that is. Now, what is he saying about it? What is the argument that he's making concerning perfection, this matter of drawing near to God. Well, in the first place, the Levitical priesthood did not work to bring it about. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? The Levitical priesthood didn't work. And this is a big claim. In the Old Testament, that whole first part of our Bibles, God is pursuing humanity, a people from among Adam's race for his own possession, and he provides a way to himself through Moses and the law that he gave at the mountain after delivering his people from Egypt, and this priesthood, priests, mediators, those who represented God to humanity and those who represented man to God. And he's provided this. So for our author here to say, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, which is to imply, good rhetorical question, good preacher, it didn't. Well, this here is a very big claim. And for many of the original readers who would have been 
uh, Jewish by background, believed in the Old Testament before Jesus come, now having believed in Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, their great temptation will have been to reorient their relationship with God through and by means of the Old Testament law and priesthood. And they had reasons for maybe wanting to do that. So it's a big claim to say that the law, the law, for under it, people received the law. Well, what he's claiming here is that if the priesthood wasn't able to get us to God, get us back to Eden, get us to fellowship with God, well, then the law wasn't able to either. These things are connected. Now, at some point, at this point in the commentary, some commentators will say, now, what he's not talking about is the moral law. They will take the law, which refers to that body of teaching and instruction, that old covenant that Moses gave to Israel at Mount Sinai, which included uh, laws concerning her life as a nation, laws uh, concerning the tabernacle and the priesthood, laws concerning how to live and love for neighbor, not to murder, commit adultery, etc. The Ten Commandments are included here. There's hundreds and hundreds of these laws. And some commentators will say, now, what he's referring to here is the, the ceremonial law. That those laws that concerned sacrifices and that kind of thing. But the moral law, that still stands. We still shouldn't murder and we shouldn't commit adultery and these things. We shouldn't lie. And that's true. But the claim here in Hebrews is, is, is as provocative as it sounds, maybe to our ears, it certainly was to theirs. The whole thing is obsolete. He uses the language of weakness and useless to refer to the old covenant. Look, Verse 22, Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. He's not just talking about part of what Moses gave. He's talking about all of what Moses gave. And you can't untie these things and separate laws into different buckets. That's just not actually how the Bible presents the Mosaic law. It's really more simple, his claim, even if harder to hear, that the whole Mosaic law was weak and useless and, as he'll say in another chapter or two, obsolete. So this is a big claim that he's making here, that the Levitical priesthood didn't work. And this is an important note here in verse 11, for under it the people received the law. It's not that the priesthood was a part of the law that Moses gave to Israel. The law that Moses gave to Israel, with all of its commandments, was on the foundation of the priesthood. You have the priesthood, which provides a way for the people to relate with God. And it's in that context of that relationship that God then instructs his people on how they are to live. The priesthood was not one part of that or subservient to that. The claim that he's making, which he explains, is that, yes, if you make a change to the priesthood, you've got to change the You need a whole new law. You need a whole new covenant. Well, that's his point. All of what Moses gave is weak and useless and obsolete. Now, hear it in context. The law itself is not useless in every respect. Even other authors will indicate that the law is good for instructing us in righteousness. It's true that we should not murder, 
lie and steal. But that was true before Moses gave the law. Okay. Also, the Old Testament law is good for training us to know that we need the atonement. The author here is citing the Old Testament, which proves that it's useful and it's needful, even as it points us to Jesus. It helps us to know our own sin. So the Old Testament law is useful for instruction, but as it concerns getting us to God, the whole thing doesn't work. It had to be replaced, which is why a second thing is important to say here. That this, though the the law could not get the job done, this wasn't something that God discovered later when it didn't work. This was its intended purpose. It was purposefully deficient, if that makes sense. This law, which was based on external things, like for example, the priesthood, he says, uh, verse 16, those who have become a priest, uh, uh, this new one, Jesus, who has become a priest, became so not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Uh, The physical externalities. If you look a chapter or two back, you'll see a list of requirements for a priest. They're external in nature, not even his character. Well, Jesus is a priest by the call of God, and his calling is internal in nature. The Levitical priesthood, with the tabernacle, And all the sacrifices were external in nature. They were a model. They were, as we spoke of last week, like a little sketch, like the dots that you connect. When Jesus shows up, if you've been watching all the little dots, you've been able to see a clearer and clearer picture. And now Jesus comes and fills the dots with color, even 3D. The Old Testament is like those dots. And Jesus coming is the real thing. Or to use the author's illustration, the Old Testament is shadows and Jesus is the substance. The shadows lead us to him. They give us the outline. The point simply is that not only was it, did it not work to bring people to God, but that was not its intention. It was never intended to. In other words, its deficiency was a feature and not a bug. And it took eyes to see that this whole system was leading to something. That this was merely the outline of the Messiah who would come and not the way of salvation itself. And these current readers, under pressure of costs associated with identifying with Jesus, a recently crucified man, whom they claimed was invisibly alive, now at the Father's right hand, in a real body, but but not visible to us, that claim was, was audacious, it was kind of nuts, and it was costing people their jobs, livelihoods, family, and friendships. And there would be a temptation to go back to the obvious things, the things you could see and touch and smell and feel, the bells and the robes and the priesthood and all of that. And so you too, like these readers and me, are tempted to exchange allegiance to the invisible Jesus for something a little more easy to see, a little easier to trust. Externalities. Now, casting ourselves on Jesus wholly is a work of the Spirit and a miracle. And by means of this passage, he's helping us to stay in 
in the faith. The Levitical priesthood did not work. It was actually never intended to. And you'll notice again, he's bringing up this man, Melchizedek. So let's slow down and listen here. Verse 15. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, but the power of an indestructible life, for it's witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We talked about him last week. A few reminders about who this man Melchizedek is. Melchizedek was a real man. Some of the things our author said last week would make us to think that maybe he was an angel or something. But if you read through Genesis, uh, God comes to Abraham, promises him land and descendants and blessing, and in the course of his journeys, war breaks out, Lot and his family are captured, Abraham gathers 318 men and goes and subdues four kings and saves his people. And out comes this man. We have two verses on it, Melchizedek, who meets with Abraham and blesses Abraham, and Abraham pays a tithe to him, and then he's gone. And in a book that has a genealogy for everybody, important or non-important, it's as though the author has deliberately left this guy's background out. There's nothing. He appears and is gone. It has the appearance of a mysterious figure who appears as if from eternity. And so we see the Holy Spirit was putting into the page of Scripture a little sketch, another little dot as to what the Messiah might look like, and Jesus shows up and fills it out. He was a real man. He was a godly man, a worshiper, we're told, of the Most High God. And it shouldn't surprise us that there were other worshipers of the one true and living God, even in Canaan, in the ancient Near East. Although the story of the Bible focuses on Abraham, before the Canaanites had abandoned the worship of the one true and living God, some of them at least, they had worshipped him. We have proof enough in this appearance of this man Melchizedek. He was a king priest. That's how he's introduced. And that's so interesting because there really is no such thing in the Old Testament. And this is why David, many years later, will be studying the book of Genesis and he can't get this out of his mind. He can't, he can't miss it. And so he sees in Melchizedek the, the sketch of the Savior to come who will be both. This, this ancient king-priest guy with a crazy name provides a template for what the Savior would be like. He wouldn't be just a priest. He wouldn't be just a king. He'd be a king from the line of Judah. The priests don't come from the line of Judah. They come from the Levites. But the Levites were appointed a priesthood by commandment. David, Holy Spirit through him, speaks of a, a different order of a priesthood. In other words, a way to God that works. If you were living in the Old Testament, oh, what privileges you had. 
the, the deliverance of your people from the Red Sea and the presence of God, a real presence in the tabernacle or in the temple. You had his word. You had priests to read the word and minister the word to you. You could take sacrifices and know that your sins were at least temporarily forgiven, but in a real way. But how is that returning to Eden? How is that the kind of relationship with God that you would ultimately want? There's got to be a better way. This system doesn't work, if you're honest. Oh, but a different priest will come who's a king and the Savior will be both. This Melchizedek was a hint that God had a way of, a different way of providing access to him. And we're told that he's greater than Abraham. Abraham was paying tithes to him, a sign of allegiance and superiority, and he's blessing Abraham. And he's a mysterious figure, deliberately so on the page of the Bible, in order that we might ponder these things. And so that's exactly what our author has been doing. He's been looking at the Old Testament, and he is reasoning from the Bible with his hearers to talk them out of any thought of returning to the Old Testament system of worship and access to God. They're actually contemplating leaving Jesus for all of this stuff that God actually gave to his people. But he's reasoning from the scriptures that that is no way to go. Which back to that comment about the importance of working hard at church and in sermon listening and in being a Christian, some of that involves knowing the scriptures so we're not fooled, knowing the scriptures so that we can be reasoned with. He's drawing on their knowledge of scripture. So even this next year, if you have plans to read through the Bible, I'd commend that. At least daily Bible reading. The Bible doesn't instruct us that we must do that, but it seems reasonable and a great opportunity given that we have the printed scriptures, all of us in our hands, hopefully. But as you do so, sometimes you're going to open your Bible and think, well, I didn't really get anything out of it. Hey, I can relate with that. Well, keep reading and keep reading. At the very least, opening our Bibles every day and ever we open them, is a simple acknowledgement that God speaks and we listen. And that's a great way to start the day. And often, there are true things sitting there right on the page that are plain to us. And so let's thank God for those and praise Him for who He is in specific ways. But sometimes, we don't know where the story is going. Well, it wasn't all meant to be read in... 10 or 15 or 20 minute increments. And so you just got to hang on. And sometimes it's years later that things come together. But that cumulative compounding effect of reading our Bibles regularly is part of the purpose of reading our Bibles regularly. As is the purpose of hearing sermons regularly. Ideas get lodged in our mind. They grow. They take shape. And sometimes they make sense years later. So be encouraged if recently you've read through Hebrews and felt discouraged. It's okay. He said this was hard to understand. Hang on with time. Certainly when we meet the Lord, all this will come together. But this author is not afraid to make an argument from the Bible and to get all detailed with his readers. And that is a part of what they need to hold fast to Jesus and not to be fooled by their very own scriptures that they should revert back to an obsolete, useless, and weak way of relating with God.
A way that cannot allow them to stand before God and be saved. So the Old Testament law couldn't get the job done. It didn't work. That was a feature, not a bug. It was built that way so that we might long for and look for and see Christ when he comes. And then he continues to persuade his readers with this. It becomes even more evident. Come on, guys. When another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So if you weren't looking for him exactly, well, he's shown up. You know he lived, and he fits the bill perfectly and in more ways than you were expecting before he came. And he doesn't descend from priests by some bodily external requirement, for he has an indestructible life. A better hope is introduced, in other words, through which, and here's the point of it all, through Jesus and through his priestly work, we draw near to God. Through Jesus and his priestly work, there is nothing between you and God if you come to God through him. If you try to come to God through Jesus, but make sure that God knows of all the good works that you did this week so that he'll know that you're acceptable before him, you don't get it. And you're in danger of falling away. Or maybe you've never met him at all. No. We come to God through Jesus. We draw near to him, abandoning all of our confidence in ourselves and placing all of our confidence in Jesus to get us all the way to God. And we can draw near to him. And that's the good news of this first portion of our text today. So he's made a bold assertion. Consider this image of the Titanic. They say that many of these lifeboats, if we could call them that, were not full, and yet the Titanic goes down and many die. And some of that may have been hubris and a lack of preparation. But a closer look seems to reveal that it was at least partly that people didn't want to get off the ship. The Titanic, sinking even if a little bit, felt safer. Maybe the lights were on. You could feel it. It was strong. It was, after all, called the Titanic. It was this indestructible ship. And you're to get on this little wooden boat in the middle of the ocean? Stay on the big boat. Stay on the thing that feels right, that you can touch. No, Christianity, Christ, calls us to abandon confidence in what we can see and what seems trustworthy and sturdy and to entrust ourselves wholly to Jesus Christ, who is not visible to us at the moment, but is at his Father's right hand, having been really raised from the dead for us. So I pray you'd step off the boat and on to Christ. He is, to switch metaphors, but under the nautical theme, an anchor for the soul and nothing 
else holds. So, an audacious and bold claim. Now, some assurance, which is needed. The assurance that Jesus will never change on us. Verses 20 through 28. The original readers needed to hear this. For if he's just argued that the thing that they're trusting is obsolete and useless, God has replaced it with that to which it pointed in Jesus, uh, is he going to change his mind again? I mean, you and I are not very reliable friends and family. We say things at times that we don't mean. We say things and we change our mind. We say things and then we find out that we're not able to do good on promises that we make. God is not like that. And we need the assurance that he's not like that. And so we have the assurance here in the rest of the passage that Jesus will never change on us. He will never lie to us. Verse 20 And was it not without an oath? For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. What he means is the whole Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament was just God's instruction. Aaron, your sons will act as priests. He didn't promise them an eternal occupation. The former priests were made so without an oath, but this one was made a priest by an oath. By the one who said, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. That's, that's from David's psalm. You're a priest forever. The emphasis here on the Lord has sworn and he won't change his mind. He doesn't lie. He's able to keep his word. He says what he means. As we explored last week, this whole matter of him swearing with an oath seems like too much. So he makes a promise and then he's got to swear it with an oath. So was the promise and the thing he said previously, like he didn't really mean it or we didn't need to trust him on it. But now the kinds of things he says where he swears an oath, those are the things that we can really take him for his word on. I know that's not the case. He is accommodating himself to us. One commentator put it too perfectly. God has accommodated himself to within the sphere of human responsibility, excuse me, human undependability, his own is a double assurance to fallen, duplicitous humanity of the eternality of Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. Here's the point in all this here. God swears to you on his own name. Who else is he supposed to swear by? He swears by his own name. To help us out a little bit, He says, listen, here's my signature, in other words. Look at my signature. He didn't need to give us a signature, but we needed a signature. He gave us an oath. From Psalm 110, this quote right here in the scriptures is God's not only promise, but signature to us that there really is a way to perfection. That is, there really is a way to draw near to him without hesitation and without reservation. And regardless of what you've done this last year or this last week, there is a way open to you for full fellowship with God if you'll come to him through Jesus. 
And that is a great encouragement to to sinners like us all. He will not lie to us. He really means it. And he will not die in seeking to accomplish this. The former priests, there were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He does not lie and he does not die. If you come to Jesus, come to God through Jesus, in faith that wholly depends on him, hold fast to him, he will never stop saving you. He will never let go of you. He is strong to get you at the uttermost, to save all of you. He died once for all. See that in verse 27. He doesn't offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. He doesn't have any. He offered himself up once for all. And he has an indestructible life. He always lives to make intercession for them. He'll never stop saving you, and he'll never stop praying for you. That's what this means here. He always lives to make intercession for them, for you and for me, if we come to God through him. And it's important for you and I to know that. Apparently, we need help to hold fast to Jesus. And some of the help that God gives to us in this book is the knowledge that Jesus prays for us. You don't need to turn there, but I will turn there and read a passage for you from Luke chapter 22. What does this mean that he prays for us? Does it mean that he is praying that we would be forgiven? I don't think that's correct. But we have some hints in other places. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Why didn't that happen? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter will deny Jesus, but he will not despise Jesus and abandoned Jesus in such a way that his heart was so hard as never to turn back. For he weeps when confronted and is reconciled to Jesus by Jesus' own initiative. But just notice here that some of what Jesus did when he went away to pray was he prayed for his disciples. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. One thing I have to imagine this means and Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, is that, he, is that he prays for us. And he knows how to pray for us. Think of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We can be accused by Satan or others and make us to doubt we've done the right thing in siding with Jesus. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us. It's in the context of the pressure to abandon Jesus that Paul offers that word about Jesus' intercession. No one can be against you if God is for you. And Jesus is praying you believe it. Jesus prays for Peter. Even in the book of Acts in chapter 7, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. It was even at his death that he's praying and seeing Jesus at the Father's right hand. And here Peter doesn't fail even at the end as he's rushed. And so take great encouragement in this truth that Jesus intercedes for you and prays for you. You can hold fast to Jesus. Jesus is worth holding fast to. You've heard the case. There's no other way to get to God anyways. He's a perfect way to be with God. And as it is, he's praying for you. He's praying for you and he is perfect in his person. He is permanent in his priesthood. And there's no one we better ought, we'd ought rather to be with. He will never retire or tire from taking care of his own. He is a great high priest for us. Because of who he is, holy and unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens because of where he's gone for us at the Father's right hand, he's no longer dealing with temptations and trials. There's no longer the question of will he make it to the other side. Oh, he's through it. And because where he's been for us, for he has been through it all, your temptations and trials he has been through, and he understands them perfect personally, and he understands them perfectly. So as we face 2023, I don't know what changes you have in mind for your own life, but if you have never drawn near to, G to God through Jesus, this is the one change you must make. You must draw near to God through him, and he will receive you. And if that's a change that you have made, don't change course. Don't let go. Consider Jesus with each day this year. Look to him with each day. Fix your eyes on him and let us hold fast and encourage and exhort one another every day this year as long as it's called today. Well, let's pray together. Well, Father, we give you thanks that hearing our prayers today does not depend upon our, our goodness yesterday, but upon Christ's perfect work of salvation 2,000 years ago and some 23 other years or so, and upon his intercession that our relationship with you is personal and we are received not because we are good, but because he is good and because he is a great high priest for us. Would you help us to be a church that holds fast to him for all of this with the confidence that he can save to the uttermost all those who draw near to him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.